This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Aviation's Alice takes flight. And the House passes legislation for the NCAA, the other one. All right, David, airline hiring is still going very strong. And the Southeast is starting to bounce back from Hurricane Ian. All right, you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do some hangar talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. All right, welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Beverly Hills Aerials. Zach Huffman found these guys for us. You've seen them before because what they yeah. do is operate UAVs at major events. And this is obviously what we thought a logical use of UAVs was going to be. And this company has swooped in and done a lot of big ones. And it's it's pretty interesting the way they run things. Yeah, I've seen them at the Charlotte Motor Speedway when I've uh, been there during my off time doing a little photo editing. And there is actually a race coming up, the, the Charlotte Roval, the Bank of America Roval, 400 miles. And they're going to um, do an infield course and, and part of the track. But these folks, Beverly Hills Aerials, they've been there before. They provide some of that coverage to folks who are watching on TV. And they do a lot of work, in with films, with major films and other commercials. What's a roval? Is that a road and oval course? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's a combination between a road course and an oval course. So the road course are the uh, road course are the turns inside the infield, and the oval is the normal, you Bangs, know, yeah, okay. big track okay. that you would be. You know, normally, when NASCAR competitors race, they're they're um, almost always turning left and just left. But with uh, with part of the road course, you're going left and right. By the way, if it's raining, they will still still compete whereas a lot of times they will not compete on an oval course if it is inclement weather okay interesting all right cool let's get right to the news the aviation alice this is one i think maybe we've went, mentioned it once or twice before it's one of the leaders in the ev tall world they have just taken their first flight and they did it in a very public way yeah, you know, that's really interesting, Ian. We've been standing by for months hoping that Alice would take flight. And in fact, uh, we've actually seen some spy pictures, you know, from some of the run-ups and the taxi tests out in Washington State. But an eight-minute maiden voyage was made public. The airplane is a twin motor, if you'll recall. It's a twin electric motor. And we've talked about the Magni 650 electric propulsion units before on the show. So this is the real deal. It flew for a while. It got up to 3,500 feet. Ian, there are some real interesting parameters that the airplane has. It, it's a it's a you know people mover or a cargo mover. I mean, it, it it can hold some weight or some people. Yeah, that's right. And the video is really interesting, actually, because they when they did this flight, it's like you know they said, oh, it performed great, and it bounced off the runway and everything else. I don't know if you watch the video because they it, it takes a lot of runway. So I wonder, it's like, okay, whether well, they're using full power, full battery power, full, you know, electric motor power because it, uh, it used a fair amount. But, yeah, they're talking about a, a few thousand pounds, multiple passengers. Yeah, 2,500 pounds and 260 knots maximum speed. That's impressive. Yeah, it really is impressive. So Cape Air naturally is one of the launch customers. Well, I don't know. I should say, I don't know if they're a launch customer. They're an early customer. They've they've made some orders. 75 orders, an order for 75 airplanes and, and Global Crossing Airlines, which I had not heard of before. They followed up with 50 aircraft, you know, on order. That's, yeah. that's some money. Yeah. And uh, I know Cape Air said 
it can, I think this one, if it meets its design targets, we'll be able to fact, I think cover 80% of their routes, which is right. pretty impressive. You know, they operate in the U S they operate a little bit in, in the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. Yeah. 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 So very cool. It's interesting because there's, there is starting, we're starting to see a little bit of shakeup in the EVTEL market because at we the are. same time that the Alice was taking its first flight, Kitty Hawk, which was one of the first, one of the ones that generated a ton of buzz, they folded. They shuttered the doors and that was via a LinkedIn announcement. So yeah. it kind of flew <laughs> underneath the radar screen, yeah. if, if you will. So to speak. Yeah. And you know, that's the first major shakeup in that industry, the advanced air mobility segment. And let's go mm -hmm. ahead and throw that acronym out there, AA. AM to remind folks that we are pilots, so we always talk in acronyms. But it is a shame. You know, this was a company that was supported early on by some Google investments. Yes. And really, Ian, if you look at the history of the company and at Kitty Hawk, there's been spinoffs, there's been mergers. You know, part of it is part of the that original concept is still going. But, you know, early on, it was just interesting because we were looking at one type of a, um, aerial vehicle and then it morphed into something called the heavy side. Yeah. And that just yep. didn't just didn't take off, pun intended. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you know, started by Google founders and it's like they did. It was sort of a shoot for the moon kind of project. They're like, let's see if this is even possible. And right. I don't know. There's not a lot of details at this point in the story about, OK, is it? Did they shut down because they didn't think the design was feasible or because they thought they were maybe too late to market or the market had sort of changed from their original concept? I'm not so sure. It looks like a, it's funny, the thing looks like an airplane flying backwards. It does. It's got the canard on the front. It's got yeah. multiple engines. It's, Reverse sweep wings. That, it's yeah. really an interesting concept. But, you know, the thing is, it's all, to me, it's all about power and weight and, and energy management. And that's that's a lot of airplane to keep in the air, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of motors going on there too. Maybe that's why the Magni 650 powered Alice did better because mm -hmm. it's just two engines to, to manage, yeah. you know, and uh, it's interesting. Yeah, this is, I love this. They had this in the, this is an Aviation Week story we just showed. And so Sergio Kakuta, maybe the partner in SMG Consulting and the developer of AAM Reality Index. I love that. The Reality Index. What it's is like, that? So it's like, you know, there's hundreds of these designs and I guess they've indexed, okay, which ones are going to be viable, which ones aren't. This was number 10, actually. Kitty Hawk was number 10 on that list, I guess, because maybe the financial backing and everything else and how early they were. So number 10 doesn't make it. Obviously, there's going to be a ton more shaking out and we know that, but this is one of the, I think, the probably the first high profile one that's happened. Well, before we leave this subject, I think the folks at Buy Aerospace have been rather quiet recently. And, you know, we were talking about the E-Flyer 2. We talked about the E-Flyer 4. We talked about a cabin class type of aircraft they were going to bring to the market. And I wonder what's going on there in Colorado. Maybe we'll check. We'll talk about it next time. All right. So moving on. The House has approved some additional funding for aviation education. This passed the House of Representatives on September 28th. It will establish the National Center for the Advancement of Aviation, which is, I guess for all intents and purposes, a, a uh, sort of aviation education clearinghouse center that'll provide additional funding to programs all over the country. Yeah, and the collaboration also includes STEM collaboration, science, technology, engineering, and math. And if you've lived under under a rock for the past five or ten years, um, <laughs> that that is a pretty hot topic. You know, the thing is about STEM concepts – you find them in any in any business almost, yeah. uh, you know, electronics, aviation, automobiles. You know, we're talking about self-driving cars, things like that. So the NCAA, the other one, because it's not the the it's not the Collegiate Athletic Association. We're talking about the Aviation Consortium here, but they, it is put together to help get more people involved in STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's what's interesting about this to me is that you know. There have been all kinds of businesses that have come together and organizations that have come together to promote this. And we know that we need to fill some hiring spots and and the uh, NCAA will hopefully be a foundation for that for years to come. Yeah, that's right. So I think there are over 200 organizations have, have written letters saying, please pass this. And so the original bill was introduced by Andre Carson from Indiana, late Don Young from Alaska. 
and the subcommittee chairman, Rick Larson from Washington. Um, there is a companion bill in the Senate that was introduced uh, last May by uh, Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, a big friend of general aviation, and Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, a, a vet and, and a pilot. So Excellent. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They're, they're both they both big GA folks, and, and we've we've talked to Inhofe before uh, at AirVenture. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we probably need to get Senator Duckhoff on, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah Senator Duckworth, absolutely. Yeah. Duckworth, yeah. So uh, that's good news, I think, looking forward. All right. Speaking of good news, and, you know, they're going to need bodies for all of these jobs. The NCA can do that. Hiring is still going very strong. Um, we talk, it seems like we talk about this like once a month. But every month, it seems like there's some sort of piece of news or a bit of info that will help people as they kind of move forward. Hiring was what? The second? August was the second busiest month for the majors ever. Yeah, 1,169 hires. That's nothing to sneeze at. You know, we've talked about this before. ATP boosted their operations from 43 to 71 in a matter of of just a couple of years. They had, you know, new facilities built. And when you look at the big schools like Embry-Riddle, they have, and California Aeronautical, they've graduated increasingly large classes in the past several years. You know, Embry-Riddle down there in Daytona, they have 2,500 combined aeronautical sciences students enrolled, and that's a 20-year high. And we, we've also talked to Matt Johnston. We've had him, I think, I've talked to him before and had a little bit of, of, of Matt and JS Firm on, on the program before when we were talking about hiring. That school has... Um, really expanded as well. They now offer some helicopter, you know, flight training. So that segment, which is close to you, helicopter that is, is also another field that a lot of folks are interested in, especially now as we follow up with We'll be talking about soon Hurricane Ian and some of the rescues that that they need helicopter pilots for and and other folks on special missions. Yeah, and um, just doing the research for the flight training story this year, the flight training uh, annual collegiate issue that we do, schools all over having issues just trying to get the space, really the physical space, the airplanes, the instructors. Uh, Middle Tennessee State, which has always been kind of a large program, has just has I think doubled just in the past couple of years. They're working, you know, like four times the students that they have space for. And so they're trying to, you know, clamor for more space, getting new facilities built. So it is a, a great time to be in these programs. And and I think the hiring, you know, there's this trickle-down effect, right? So people hear that the airlines are hiring. They get more entrance into these programs, which, you know, just everything sort of builds and builds. One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was, and a part of uh, Nikki's story was what Mesa Airlines is doing. I think oh, lots right. of people a couple of years ago had predicted maybe that the airlines would have to start paying for training. They've taken a really creative approach, and I, I have a rant about this, I'll warn you. They've bought some airplanes, and they're going to offer them for cheap, basically. Well, I was going to just mention that, and, and, and Nikki Britton did write this story, the, the latest hiring update. And, you know, Boeing still says we need 600,000 pilots and 600,000 mechanics in the next 20 years. Just do the math on that, and there, there's it's going to be hard to fill no matter what you do. But, yeah, Mesa Airlines purchased 29 Pipistrel Alpha Trainer 2 aircraft, with the option to buy 75 more yeah, uh, to help the, them get trained towards the ATP minimums. Now, I was confused a little bit about the Alpha Trainer because there's an electric version of the Pipistrel. And right. you were correcting me before we were going over the show beforehand. But now the electric version is not, I don't think it's not certified yet to not fly in the States, the That's right. Yep. Yep. That's right. So what's your rant on Mesa? Let me hear yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So follow, follow me on this. Here we go. This is, I think, First and foremost, a very creative solution. So Mesa is not saying, come in with us and uh, we'll pay for your training and, you know, come into our program and we'll pay for your training and get you hired. They've taken a more, I would say, collaborative approach with the students maybe, which is on all these airplanes, they come in 25 bucks an hour. You can fly these airplanes, I think up to 40 hours a month. No, I'm sorry, 40 hours a week, which nobody's going to be able to fly 40 hours a week, but they're going to offer it that much. So come in $25 an hour. You get hired over three, it's zero interest over three years. You can pay back that money. So all these people who say I can get through these 250 hours and then where am I going to come up? I don't want to instruct where am I going to come up with the money to fly another 1250 hours. You could do that in Mesa's program. I see because it's less expensive. Yeah. 25 bucks an hour. I mean, that's basically a cost. You're going to spend, you know, I don't know what the math is. Let's call it 30, $40,000, which you'll then be able to pay it off over three years after you're hired and, and, pay the way it is now it's that's not really a hardship but here's my rant 
the whole, the, sorry, that was the background of the rant. Here comes the that rant. Was, that was leading up <laughs> that to was it. Right. That was not the rant. That was the okay. information you need for the rant. This is an insane thing. Okay, so this is me talking. This is not AOPA. The fact that we're going to have people in the right seat that the only experience they've ever had is flying, flying to alpha in trainer, an alpha right. trainer around VFR for 1,200 yeah, yeah. hours does right, nothing right. to prepare them for an airline cockpit. Nothing. It's not the same flight operations. It's not the same wing loading. It's not the same. I mean, you're not even flying IFR. So it's like, okay, fine. Right. You get to go to other airports. Great, right? You're going to get some real-world experience with weather and dodging it. Great. But it's like it would be such such a better idea, such a safer idea to get people with lower time train them intensively, put them in simulators, train them in crew operations. It's like, this is the way they've done it in Europe. This is the way the military does it. They do it safely. This is just insane. And it shows, I think, the complete idiocy of the 1,500-hour rule, which is basically that you have to go and check this box. Okay, I have 1,500 hours of experience. How the quality of the experience, completely irrelevant. Well, quant uh, the quality versus the quantity, that's a big issue. Yeah. And, you know, the Republic Airways recently filed a petition for exemption to that 1,500-hour um, rule, and it was denied. And, the re denied. and I... I've heard the scuttlebutt is that 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 will never change no. because of the because of the accident up in, in New York. No, gosh, there's it's an amazingly powerful special. I don't want to call them a special interest group. Group of vi victims' families. Yeah. Um, Kogan right Kogan Air yeah. Flight, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. And God, but just I mean, come on. It's like let's get some common sense here. I just think, I mean, for the people who go into this program and for Mesa, it's awesome, right? Yeah. But when you talk yeah. about it largely about safety and what it does for aviation. That's crazy. I just don't understand. Well, you it. know, I was going to mention earlier, and actually I'll mention it now because it kind of works here. We were talking about the STEM and we we're talking about the NCAA. Mm -hmm. Our high school symposium is coming up. It's in Memphis this year, November uh, 13th, 15th. But here's where I'm going with that. A couple of years ago, we had it in Denver. And I was able to fly a 737 simulator. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it was very cool. And I took off. I landed. had great coaching. But I can do it. I mean, my wife always asked me, can you land this if we have an emergency? <laughs> I always say it, no. I'm like, no, I can, uh, you know, I can no, turn on the autopilot maybe and just leave it. You and, could do it. Yeah. But, I, but you know what? Um, I heard from some of the instructors that that is a common teaching methodology, which is, in the simulator, in the simulator, in the simulator, all the way up until you fly your very first real flight for revenue, mm -hmm. it is all in the sim. Yeah. Now, to me, that is amazing. It is amazing. It shows you how powerful that could be. Absolutely. And I think you would, if you asked a bunch of people in training departments at airlines who their ideal candidate is, they're going to say somebody who's relatively fresh out of flight training, not like fresh out, but relatively fresh who's been flying intensively, training intensively, never had gaps, doesn't matter if they have 400 hours or 1,000 hours or whatever, they are, that person is much more prepared to go to sim training and to, and to pass the rigors of airline training than the pilot who, than me, right? Who I could meet the 1,500 hour requirement, but I've gained that experience over 25 years, not over yeah, two years. Yeah, off and right? on. And you, yeah, yeah you, you, you're flying and then all of a sudden life gets in the way and then yeah. you get back into it. Sure, that's right. I understand. Yeah, it's like the whole thing is just, uh, just crazy. But, well, and you know, yeah. with the military, especially it's, um, you know, you can, uh, case in point, you know, that is intensive training day in, day out. They're living it. They're, they're uh, during missions that are deployed. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I read recently that, that, you, that pilots could fly 80 hours, you know, uh, like in a, in a, I, I could be wrong. Was it 80 hours in a month or is it 80 hours in a, it could be in a week. Could it? Uh, they're know. eight hour days. Yeah. So if you know, 80 hours in a, in a month. And so it's like, that's a lot of flying because it, to me, that's the way to do it, to jump in and just do it. You know, uh, proficiency uh, builds experience, and experience builds proficiency. Yeah. So. I mean, the other you're right about the military, because it's like if somebody can pass military flight training and become a pilot in the military, they can pass airline flight training and be a pilot in the airline. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to that, and I'm sure somebody at some high, you know, somebody in the training department is going to tell me about somebody, you know, some ex-military aviator they've had. And, and I think fighter pilots have a transition where they have to learn to work in a crew right but beyond that it's like man why is there even a why is there any hour minimum for those people they've they've proven themselves but anyway rant over and we'll be right back
Speaking of airlines, there's there's actually a couple of mom and daughters to celebrate yeah. um, that, that flew together on, on a happier note. Mm-hmm. And Nikki Britton wrote this story, too. So Camelia Zarka made Hawaiian Airlines history when she was the captain, and she flew with her daughter, Maria. And that is interesting for Hawaiian Airlines. And now, a couple of cool things, I think, um, bubbled up from this story. Number one, the mom was a flight attendant and was invited to the cockpit during a flight. It was back in the in the 90s when you could do that sort of thing. And she really said to herself, hey, I want to do that. And so she took the time and the resources to get her private certificates and her instrument and her advanced ratings. So I think, number one, that is very cool. She built a lot of time up. And then her daughter, Maria, started with with Republic Airlines. And so she didn't jump right into Hawaiian with her mom at the same time, but she paid some dues. Um, It was hired by Hawaiian Airlines in April of 2022. Then they shared the cockpit of a, it says a Boeing 717 while doing some neighbor island flights um, on September 1st. So that's about a month ago as we record this. Now they are not the only mom-daughter combination to fly together but they were the most recent that we know of yeah yeah this is great i think as we see more of these role models and more of these flights it'll hopefully show that aviation can be a place for everybody and and attract more and so i i I think these are awesome we should definitely celebrate these absolutely well before we go on we'll 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 hit the highlights real quick of a couple others that did some research uh, mom and daughters Mm -hmm. southwest captain holly pettit and first officer keely pettit Skywest Captain Susie Garrett and First Officer Daughter Donna and Delta Airlines Captain Wendy Rexon, and I probably mispronounced her last name, but First Officer, her daughter, Kelly Rexon. So they are leading the way for other women and females in aviation. And Ian, it wasn't that long ago you wrote a story about the 7% yeah. of, uh, of commercial airline pilots, and, and we really need to up those odds, and we're, we're doing everything we can to get that changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dave, let's talk about uh, what everybody has been talking about. A very sad story that we want to make sure and cover, and that is the uh, Hurricane Hurricane Me, Hurricane Ian, that uh, hit southwest Florida. Um, obviously, there are so many impacts in people's lives that are hugely important, their safety, their families, their stuff at their house, everything. But, you know, aviation is a part of that. It's, it's a love that we have, and uh, the airports are a part of that. And so as people pick up their houses and their families and kind of get try and get back to some sort of recovery or normal life, the airports have been affected. So we want to talk about that. It was, uh, it was, it was quite a storm. It was. And, you know, the, it first made landfall. Well, it went over Cuba mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. and then it hit, hit the outer islands near, near you know, Sanibel and Captiva yeah. over on the western, southwestern western coast of Florida. The Fort Myers got hit particularly hard that area and there are several airports near there punta gorda airport Mm -hmm. had some bad damage southwest florida international airport had some bad damage in fort myers the naples municipal airport and my good buddy and and instrument cfi keith west has a flight school rex air over there and so our our hearts are going out to all all the folks down in florida because it's such a big aviation community yeah, that's right. And I'm really interested, I mean, as always, in the role that aviation plays in the recovery. Um, of course, there's, uh, well, in, in all of it, really, because there was this just incredible video that came out from uh, somebody on a NOAA hurricane hunter, and he was saying and how bad the turbulence was when they were doing those flights. Worse than they have ever experienced. And that's in, in, uh, that's in, in a, a, P3. a sp- yeah. specifically robust, built, you know, airplane for penetrating the eyewall of the hurricane. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, aviation leading up to it was a factor. And then, of course, in the recovery. And so I, you know, just personally speaking, family in that area and my sister, she says you can hear the helicopters all day and night, that they're grabbing people off Sanibel and Captiva and then depositing them in, uh, I think, a shelter in the area. And then, of course, there's lots of flights where, where they're looking for survivors and my, you know, my brother found uh, Noah does. This is an incredible service. I didn't know they did this. They they overfly areas of storms and take really detailed photos. And you can go online and see your house and see so people who aren't from the area. Yeah. Well, they do that also to to make sure Ian that infrastructure, bridges, and roads are 
safe enough to to be passable because you don't want a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe. But yes, that's that's a key element. I'm glad you mentioned it. The other thing about airports is that that they are often airports are often the staging ground for a lot of recovery yes. efforts and specifically the Punta Gorda and Naples, um, they're well known for that to have a lot of, you know, search and rescue missions that emanate from that area. Yeah. So, so when the airports are underwater and they're close or you can't get fuel at the airport or the runways themselves have been breached, it really is a problem for additional recovery efforts. Yeah. So, and just speaking of that, as we record this, Naples is actually back operating again. They, I think, have restricted flight training and maybe some of the hours. Punta Gorda is operating as normal, which is great. And actually, Paul Bertorelli had a great comment about that, which is that because of Hurricane Charlie that they had many years ago, they basically, they had to rebuild. And so they rebuilt the hangars to a higher code, to a more current code. And so a lot of their stuff actually survived because it was to that current code. I'm sure people have seen some of the photos from Venice Airport where half of the hangars are just completely gone. Airplanes stacked on top of each other, which we saw yeah. um, at other events. Like we saw that a couple years ago in Tennessee, in Nashville, after a tornado. Yeah, yeah but Fort Myers, Page Field, FMY, is is still closed just to uh, emergency flights. So I want to I wanna give you my second rant of the day, and that is NOTAMs. So, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> they, they, just, they just dole them out like, like pieces of cake at a birthday party, don't they? Okay, this really just blew my mind. Before we started recording, I was like, okay, I want to go see what's going on with the NOTAMs, right? So I went in and I put in Pagefield, FMY, Naples, which is APF, and then Punta Gorda, which is PGD. And 126 NOTAMs came up, right, for the airports. They are... I mean, how are you supposed to read all these, Ian? Seriously, they are all interspersed with each other. So it's yeah. like you start, you've got three from Punta Gorda, then you got one from Fort Myers, then you got one from Naples, and back and forth, and yada, yada. Okay, so you ready? Go with me now here. We're starting right. at the top of this yeah. list. Permanent, I see. <laughs> How many pages? Hang on. Yeah. Wow. Hang on. And I had to keep scrolling and bringing up more information. Hang on. Hang and on. they're out of order, too. It's like I see, I see Punta Gorda, then I see right? Fort Myers, and I see There. I see Do you Naples. see the bolded one? Bolded one. Right there. That is for Pagefield being closed. Do you oh, see where it is in the it's list? Way down on the. It's on for the folks bottom. who are not seeing it on YouTube, it's almost at the very bottom of this it's list. It's at the bottom, and I'm like, "What is wrong with this?" I was like, "That waiting. should be at the tippy top." I know. I'm like, nothing else matters if the airport is closed. It's like right. I, I went onto this expecting to see the closed note at the very top, right? At you would think. Oh my god, it just drives me crazy. I just cannot cannot believe this. Notums have gotten better, but we have a long way to go yeah. still. Because here's the thing: if you're a pilot and you want to help. Out and you want to help out with Aerobridge, um, which by the way they they stood down, but Operation Airdrop is actually in operation at Kissimmee. But nonetheless, you you can't fly for these relief organizations if you're not checking the notums, and you you got to check them. And Ian, you just went through three or four pages. It's unbelievable. Of notums no, right there. Is- we just we just want to help people. I mean, you know, how hard could it be? Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention, not to mention you click on it expecting like, okay, maybe I'll get more information or a plain language. There's no plain language. And it just says the runway is closed EXCHUM, which I have I think have deduced means except for humanitarian flights. But how would we ever know that? It's like There you go. That's must be. Must be. I so, like that deduction. That's my second and final rant for the day. <laughs> so Floridians, our hearts go out to you, also yes. coastal Carolinas, but check your notums before you want to do any humanitarian aviation relief efforts. Um, although we do need folks to do that, there's a right way and a wrong way, and go through the proper organizations. AOPA also is there to help you. Don't forget, you can always call our Pilot Information Center and get the lowdown on that. And if you're able to fly, you get a special you basically get a special call sign. So, you know, we want to do that when it's appropriate, when it's safe. But yeah, Ian, three or four pages of notums is going to make it tough. All right, David. Hey, so actually speaking of, of recovery, you know, UAVs, great tools for disaster relief. But in this particular case, Beverly Hills Aerials, they do a lot of, like we said, a lot of movie flights, a lot of uh, sporting events. And uh, we're just going to talk to them about kind of how it works and, and some of their capabilities.
Our guest today has flown for some of the largest events in the world, including the Super Bowl, the Daytona 500, Kentucky Derby, Indianapolis 500, and countless others. He's captured Tom Brady draining a lengthy golf shot into the cup and has flown under moving vehicles for car commercials, all from uncrewed aerial vehicles. Mike Iskidado and the Beverly Hills aerial team are Emmy award-winning pilots and have joined us on Hangar Talk. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. All right, Mike. So let's take a look at just 2022 alone. We are halfway through the year and Beverly Hills aerials, along with your crew and, and your folks have been a part of some of the biggest productions in the world. You've broken barriers uh, that people didn't think could be done, um, including, you know, currently flying on the field for the United States uh, Football League. What does that mean to you? You know, it's, it's, it's really exciting stuff. I mean, USFL was so exciting. It's absolute mayhem flying on the field, but being able to figure out how to fly it safely and not just once, but uh, up to three games in a day we've done. And on average, two a day, twice a weekend. And we're like, we're gearing into like week 10 and having it be pretty much flawless every time is, is really exciting uh, stuff. We kind of operate with an aura of like never being complacent in this office. So, you know, while we're very proud of the things we've done, we also like are always looking forward and, and figuring out like what's next and how do we do it better. And it's, it's kind of a, we, we like to joke about it being project infinity, but it's just like an ongoing thing um, where we're all just trying to be the absolute best in whatever sector we're, we're splashing in. Obviously, you're repping the, the Fox NASCAR brand right now that you, that you guys fly for uh, almost every event. But, uh, you know, another crew you work with uh, was with NBC and, you know, Mike Tirico being one of the lead broadcasters for NBC Sports. Uh, almost every event that he's at, you're there as well. You know, let's let's look at the past Super Bowl. You know, the production queue, the production crew is getting ready to queue things up, getting ready to, you know, get everything going for the Super Bowl coverage. Mike's voice comes on air and it's paired with the Beverly Hills Aerials crew shots uh, coming out right over the Super Bowl and getting ready for the NBC coverage. You know, describe that for me. What, what does that feel like? It's definitely a powerful moment. Um, that month actually was just, I think, I think it climaxed at the Super Bowl, but it was like we going into it, we had done... I think our second NFL game live and then uh, CBS had chosen us for their top game. Fox had chosen us for their top game, the AFC championship, NFC championship. So it's like, it's like week one AFC championship next week, NFC championship. And then immediately week after with NBC Super Bowl. So it was like all three networks had chosen us for the like most important game. It was, it, it was a pretty awesome moment to know that the three networks trusted us the most with their most important game. Um, you know, and then NBC for the Super Bowl, we actually had uh, two crews going live, one at the Santa Monica Pier and then one at the stadium itself. It was pretty surreal, man. It was it was really exciting stuff, um, you know, and then working with the NFL, which is just, you know, it's incredibly complex and, and multi-layered, not just with the FAA paperwork, but working with the league, you know, and stakeholders. And there's just so, so many parts to it, which are you don't really think about it. I mean, people think you just go and fly the drone. There's like so many crazy layers behind it. And it took, honestly, I think we started planning that like the year before and it almost went away in various times before. So it, it was quite the moment, honestly, it was a really awesome moment to be a part of. So for the AOPA community, you know, uh, a lot of folks, pilot driven, aviation driven, uh, describe some of those arduous processes. You know, what does that look like for them? And, 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 you know, what does that look like for you specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, the basics, which are like easy, honestly, the FAA is like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't want to say the word easy, but we've got that just dialed at this point. So it's like every event, I mean, if, so if you take SoFi Stadium, for example, it's in Bravo airspace. So that was super complex to get. It was really tough to get the approval, but that's just dealing with the FAA directly pretty standard paperwork. And then you have an extra layer of Super Bowl. So it's, okay, there's also a temporary flight restriction, actually multiple TFRs in place, you know, and then when it, when it becomes these ultra high profile events like Super Bowl or Kentucky Derby, there's even like another layer uh, where then like some higher ups, you know, the FBI gets involved and <laughs> sometimes even CIA and there's like other clearances and paperwork that you didn't even think ex existed. And it becomes pretty complex, you know, just, on that side where it's like, I'm communicating every single flight to the FAA permission to go up, letting them know I'm down. They're 
holding me on the ground or grounding me for specific moments while they're taking care of things. And, you know, and honestly, that's like all at this point, very easy for us to do. But then now you have another layer of NFL and the NFL security and safety teams are, you know, very, very intelligent and very protective of their players and their league. And so there's a lot of knowledge in there, which is also cool to deal with a body that is very knowledgeable on the, you know, unmanned aircraft space uh, and integrating it into our airspace system. So, you know, they've got their whole list of things and that probably even becomes even more difficult because it's like, hey, we got the FAA to approve us to do all this, but then we have to go through NFL and then NFL is like, you can do this much (laughs) and figure out how to make it look good. So yeah, there's just a lot of moving parts, but it was cool. They gave us a pretty good space to fly in and I think we were able to get some some pretty nice shots that added. And every time they give us a little bit more room to grow, which is nice. So it's very much like a, you know, crawl, walk, run environment. And we're, I think, definitely still in the crawl space with the NFL. So excited to see what uh, we can grow to do this next coming year. Um, So we're super excited to show them what we've been able to execute on USFL. And, you know, while I I doubt that we'll be doing on the field stuff for NFL, I would just like to move that needle a little bit closer to some more exciting shots for sure. You know, Mike, Mike, I think it's important for everyone to know, you know, how big is Beverly Hills Aerials? How many people do you have on the team? Uh, so right now I'd say we're, we're, we are about four teams deep after that we say no to work. And so like this week we booked out all four crews We said no to a really, really big film, which hurts to say no to, but, uh, you know, but we are growing. So we're in a hiring phase right now. And so we're trying, we're trying to build out one more team to, to bring it to five. But, you know, I think the, the four teams break down to about on average is three to four people per team. So that kind of gets mixed up a little bit, but we have like five pilots and then, handful of operators and techs and they kind of all assume so really, I mean, you're, you're talking uh you know an almost a 20 person to 25 full person crew that's handling you know a- astronomical things that even some of the biggest companies in the world haven't been able to tackle yet y- yeah and it's like and there's more but beyond just the crews that go out there i mean we have multiple uh we have an executive producer alina who you've met and then an assistant producer uh and then there's a handful of I guess, specialty freelance people that we bring in, not necessarily to go on set with us, but to help on the back end of uh, some of the more tedious tasks, such as building or creating certain tools or custom things that we use. 2022, a huge historical year for Beverly Hills Aerials. Previous years, breaking barriers, knocking down walls. At what point in this whole conglomerate of, of a business organization did it really hit you and you felt as though this is the turning point? we're starting to revolutionize what we do and revolutionize this industry. Uh, I think I look at it two ways. I mean, right now, I, I feel like our team as a whole, everybody here who I, you know, I, I feel confidently that we have, I know actually that we have the best in the world already on the team. I mean, we have, you know, in my opinion, the, the world's best aerial DP. Uh, there's nobody who has more experience and, and can execute on the camera side than him. We have like the world's best heavy lift pilots. We just, we added, uh, Evan Turner, two-time reigning drone racing league champion. So literally the fastest guy in the, in the U.S., you know, arguably in the world. So it's like, I know we have the top caliber people. And the, the crazy thing, and I tell everybody this, is that I think we're all just kind of scratching the surface on what we can do. Uh, I have a huge amount of growth. I think everybody else in this office has a huge amount of growth. And so we're really just looking forward to seeing, you know, what we can do uh, in the future. And I like, it's the beginning, really. And, I, and we have a joke. It started as not a joke, but um, I think when we were smaller, we'd go out on a job and it was like, oh my God, this is the most important job of our lives. And then we started realizing, we were seriously saying it every time. And then we started realizing that we were saying it like all the time, (laughs) like almost every job. And it was like, oh my God, this is the most important job of our lives. The biggest job we're ever going to be on. And we kept topping it with job and job and job. And it almost became kind of a joke, but then kind of like a mantra too, where it's like, we look at every single job, like the most important job of our life, you know, regardless of whether it's uh, the Super Bowl or a regular season game, like it literally is the most important job of our lives. And so we look at each, each event like that. And um, I think that's allowed us to at least keep a good mindset, you know, to be able to execute on, on a high level over and over again. But yeah, man, I think, I think we're just getting started. There's a lot of cool stuff that's happening in the drone space. Uh, that we're developing new new ways of filming and, and new tools and custom never before used 
drones. And I think we're going to be able to get some shots that have never been done before in these next coming years. That'll be really exciting. Exciting stuff for sure. So, you know, Mike, we're obviously talking, you know, uncrewed aviation here. So cinematic drones, FPV drones, you know, walk us through kind of a typical day. And I know in the cinematic industry, every day is a little different, but walk us through a typical day for, you know, BHA and the crew there. So, well, we, we are on set a lot, <laughs> but let's, let's, if we set a day where we're not on set, the average day, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd come into an office. Priority list is usually prep for the first coming job. So we prep the equipment to go out on the, the closest job that's coming out. The moment that's done, typically as a team or individually, we'd go out and fly and practice. So I think that's kind of like the big thing in this office is a lot, a lot of practice and refinement before we actually get to said big event. You know, and so pretty much all our days off, like everybody in this office is so passionate that we just go and fly and practice and usually work on the custom things that haven't that we haven't deemed set ready yet. And so it's it's a lot of tinkering, it's a lot of building, it's a lot of tearing things apart and designing. You know, there's, there's I mean, I don't think you can walk through this office without seeing all five 3D printers printing something or something being cut in the CNC machine. So those, those are our average offset days. Like today is actually a rarity because we have all four crews fly out uh, tomorrow. So everybody's in the office today and it's, it's really rad. I mean, we got Kevin leading R&D. He's printing for various different projects. Uh, you know, Caleb's working on some custom new stabilization software. I'm working on another top secret project. A couple of the guys went to the field, flew, they came back, and now they're here just prepping some more gear and refining it. But yeah, there's, uh, it, it would be tough to get a, a standard day, but I'd say basically we fly. <laughs> and I think we joke about it too, where it's like we literally fly every single day of our lives. And our operators will operate to some extent. I mean, you mentioned that, that you, you know, practice and practice and practice and flying all the time. But a lot of the things that you fly, you know, a, a Super Bowl game or doing, you know, uh, while the, the, the NASCAR is doing a, a donut after winning the race, how do you practice for that? So a lot of our off days uh, involve us. So like recently we had a, two of us were off, me and Pat, one of our other pilots, and we went to a drift course where guys go and they, you know, they pay a small amount of money and they, um, they just drift their cars. And so there's like 30 beat up cars drifting after each other, literally crashing nonstop. And so we just kind of practice on them. And, you know, after you've done that a good amount of times and then you get into like the, the NASCAR moment where you get one go at it. You know, and I think now on our third season of NASCAR, I don't know, it's got to be like 60, 70 races now. So we got 60 or 70 burnout attempts <laughs> and time <laughs> to refine it, you know, and I probably flew like 40 or 50 of those. So I got a, a, an immense amount of onset practice, but, you know, we can usually find drivers. And so either, either we go to drift tracks or we are friends with a few stunt drivers and a few pro like drift drivers and we'll coordinate with them. And kind of just meet them at the track and, you know, they'll end up with some pretty videos of their cars and we get to practice um, with the real life environment. Uh, and those days are really big um, because the, on those days you get so many attempts, you know, we can go out for six, eight hours and, and fly 20, 30 times and, and really refine the tool. But then once we get on set either for NASCAR or for a commercial, like we usually get like one battery, maybe two for lucky at sunset and then that's it. So it's like, you've got to get the shot in that one moment. So like the practice is really huge. So yeah, that's, that would be like an average test. Day. I usually get a car of some sort and chase it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And you know, another thing that you kind of hinted at a little while ago too, is that most of the drones you, you guys fly are all created in house, right? You know, most of the gear or, or the I mean, you know, think... augmented things that you've put on there. And I don't think we fly an off the shelf drone. And while we may fly, some off the shelf parts, everything is incredibly like maximized and customized. So even, you know, if you went with like maybe some of our heavy lift drones would be the most off the shelf things that we fly. Even when we buy them from the manufacturer, we in essence tear them down and rebuild them and kind of soup everything up uh, just to really maximize it because most of the tools off the shelf just are mostly like consumer, prosumer geared. And so once you stick them in like a, a live environment, for example, like the RF <laughs> noise that you're playing with is not like a normal amount of noise. So like if we were to take an off the shelf, like heavy lift drone, for example, like the range would just be like God awful. Like I'm talking like a couple hundred feet and you'd be fail safe and 
you know, so we've re 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 rewired the way the control links work with some more robust custom solutions. And so there's, there's a lot of that, you know, and that's kind of like how stuff gets better. Cause it's just like, we're never really happy. So we get a drone and it flies pretty good. And then we figure out how to make it better. And then, <laughs> and then that game never ends. And then we're in project infinity. So it's really your team going out doing the, these jobs and realizing, Hey, let's tinker it this way and try to make it better. And let's yeah. continuously keep working at that. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a, I'd say it's a good, it's definitely, we always want it to be better. I mean, if you just like, for example, if you just like talk about NASCAR, you know, you go out and you fly what the network wants you to fly. And so they kind of give you some baseline things like we want to do this and that. And so you put it on the air and you fly it and there's, you're doing something that's never been done before. So there's like, there's no manual, there's no like rule book, there's nobody I can call. It's just like, we're literally figuring it out at the moment. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes the decisions you make to get it to work, like aren't the best. And you, uh, once you battle test it, you quickly realize, oh shoot, like this was a terrible idea or like this needs to be fixed. Like you make adjustments and refinements. And, you know, I'd say the networks also push a lot of that um, forward thinking, which is cool because they never seem to be complacent either. So it's like the moment we get it working, they will, uh, once they're like, oh, cool, that works. Okay, but can you do this? <laughs> and then they want some like new camera or new setting or whatever. So the game's always, it's constantly changing and evolving, which also keeps it exciting and a little bit more complex to set up, which is nice. The, the, the crew there in LA has, you know, dozens of drones, tons of drones that you guys have modified, recreated, 3D printed and all sorts of stuff. Which one stands out to you the most? And you're like, hey, this one's my baby. This is, this is the one I love to fly every time. Honestly, none. They're all just a little different and and none of them last very long. I'd say the shelf life of a drone in this office is it's a rarity if something has flown for longer than three or six months. There's a little graveyard of drones here that are fully functioning and fully working. <laughs> um, but the tech just moves so fast. The tech, the designs, that stuff gets antiquated fairly quickly. So it, it, it comes in and, you know, I think we're learning that as a company. We used to, we used to acquire them five, six at a time. And then we realized, wait a minute, like this shelf life is too short. And I think we've started acquiring them at like one or two at a time now. Cause we just know it's nothing's going to last. Any of the cool stuff doesn't last at all. And it's also relative. I was flying like a little custom drone today with the camera that we had taken apart and put back on it. And I remember it must've been 12 months ago. I flew it. And I remember being so happy about how great it flew. And you know, since then we've, we've gone through several iterations and new drones from, you know, 12 months later. And then I went back to flying it today for the first time. And I was like, this flies terrible. <laughs> and it's just so <laughs> relative, but yeah, I don't think we have a favorite drone. I mean, there's some cool stuff for sure. You know, we've got some custom designs that are carrying like uh, cinema cameras that are flying really well. Um, like FPV that I, I really, I really like. There's no favorite and it'll probably be a whole new set of stuff in 90 days. So and now, now you said that the drones are so interchangeable now. That's largely because the, the technology is changing so quickly that you guys are putting on, on and enhancing the drones with? I'd say the tech is moving very fast. So yeah, so the type of tools we're using, you know, the, the type of gimbals that are being created, the video downlink systems, the control links, like, yeah, that stuff's all changing really fast. And there's some good healthy competition, I think. I'd say when the improvements happen, they're so drastic that it's like, if you don't use the newer thing, you're just like so far behind. So yeah, it's, 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 there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, and also just design, like people, you know, the designs we were using a couple of years ago that we thought were the right designs, we realized weren't now. And, you know, we're even dialing back to some older designs. So it's, it gets really interesting, but the tech is moving at an ungodly speed for sure. So Mike, let's let's transition here a little bit. Let's kind of, you know, take a step back. What what inspired you to get into this? Cuz you've been doing this for a while now. When did when did you officially start and, you know, what has inspired you to get in, into the point that you're in today? I think we're nearing like a decade, close to 10 years. I grew up loving video cameras and things that flew, uh, RC stuff. That was just like fun for me, like the, the funnest, you know? So it was like my uncle drove RC cars, gasoline powered RC cars. And, um, you know, he would take me out to watch them race or do these little like dirt jumps. And uh, that was always really exciting. So my parents bought me some like remote, remote control stuff when I was really young. And, and that, that was like the ultimate for me. My dad flew planes like recreationally. 
So he would take me up uh, just as a passenger and like stall them out and like just kind of fly them around. And so that was really fun for me. Um, so I think the space was always really interesting. And I think the moment I figured out that people would pay <laughs> to fly an aircraft, yeah, it was kind of game over at that point. And I, and I went, I just went full in. I kind of, you know, I researched it at the time and was like, okay, what's it take to be a pro? I do this professionally on a film set. And at the time you had to have a pilot's license. And I was like, okay, so I can learn to fly a plane. And then all of a sudden I can fly drones legally on set. You know, and if it doesn't work out in the drone professional life, I still learn to fly a plane. So I almost immediately just went to go learn to fly a plane. And I got my license uh, in like, I think less than 90 days, quicker than I could get my 333 exemption, which took like, I think two years or something, something like really obscene. So I literally was licensed to fly a plane before I got my exemption. And from there, I just, yeah, I just, I honestly, I never, from the start, I never looked back. I didn't really see another option. And I just kind of, I just went really deep into it. And it's been a really slow, steady, consistent growth. I would say quarter over quarter since I started way back in, you know, I think 2014, 15, probably is when it was officially, I think when I started to do it professionally. Um, so it's been a while. So your dad was an aviator. You've got kind of aviation. You've got the bug, as many people call it. What does aviation specifically mean to you? You know, it's a very controlled way of flying that can be repeated in a super safe way, you know, and, and while and during the flying, you can do some, some unbelievable things beyond just, you know, you can do the basics of completing a task, but you can, for me, what it, what we do it for is to, to capture beautiful visuals. And so, you know, whether you're flying in a plane with a camera or a helicopter sticking your camera out or it's a drone flying, I think uh, at its core, it's just, you know, it's the, the, it's the freedom to put a camera where you can, couldn't otherwise put it in with any other way. So you have to, you have to be able to fly to get it there. Yeah. And so what, what keeps you working in this industry? Well, you know, 10 years uh, is a long time. What's kept you here? I think it's the drive to be the best. And I think I feel like we keep unlocking levels and stuff. So it's like when I think back to the shots I was getting, you know, years ago uh, and I was like, yeah, I was thinking, you know, I'm sure I had even my moments where I was like, wow, that's an unbelievable shot. And I was really happy with it. And it used to happen more than it happens now, Um, you know, and I, and I felt like I was pushing the aircraft to it's like outer envelope. And like, that was the best that the aircraft could get. And then as the aircrafts change and type of systems we use change, all of a sudden we're able to get shots that were literally impossible before. And I think having these consistent levels being unlocked is really exciting for me. And you know, each time I think I push the aircraft, like, okay, it's the maximum we can do. Like, okay, how do, how do we make this better? Like, you know, something new comes out and it's like, oh shoot, now we can kind of do it this way. And we can get the shot that we used to have to say no to. We can get it now, it's possible. That's what kind of keeps me in it, and um, and, I, and it's still going. So it's like even today, like you know, like the shots we can get now are way better than different than we could get six months ago or twelve months ago. And it seems to keep going in that direction. I think it's gonna go like that for a while. <laughs> you know, if you scrub any social platform, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it may be, whether it's uh, you know a, a, a drone enthusiast group with you know a couple thousand members or whatnot, many of them would credit you and Beverly Hills Aerials as, you know, a big deal, the best of the best. When you hear that, you know, what goes through your mind? When I hear that, um, it's, I mean, amazing to hear, you know, and there's there's so many people that I think have, have pushed the industry forward in the right ways. And, um, you know, it's a proud moment to hear stuff like that because um, I know our our guys in this office, they, they are the best. And I I tell a lot of them to their face. I said, Hey, you're the best in the world. You know that, right? So I think it's exciting, you know, and I don't, I definitely don't think we're the only ones that have done it, but I I am very proud of the team. And I, and I know we've done some really, some really powerful stuff that the team deserves credit for. We've worked really, really hard. You know, we put in the time to be able to get the opportunities and then to succeed uh, on certain jobs and come back with some really, some really great stuff. So let's look to the future, Mike. What's next in the industry? I mean, we're focused on going two directions. 
One is really the really big path. So like the ultimate, you know, the ultimate heavy lift or the ultimate FPV drone. Um, I think FPV is, is obviously been a big part of the drone industry lately, just because they're so precise. So I think we're, we're, we're trying to marry FPV with standard heavy lift drones. And so pretty much it's gimbaled FPV, um, but like a larger FPV drone that's carrying a proper cinema camera. So you maintain the precision of FPV, but you also maintain the high quality cinema camera and lenses of heavy lift drones, which traditionally fly less dynamically. Um, and so I think pushing those big camera gimbal systems into really dynamic environments, wrapping cars, you know, flying down waterfalls, like just really, really tough terrains in between trees, really fast also, you know, at, at ultra high speeds. You know, where you just, it's just like 50, 60 pounds going hundred miles an hour. That stuff's really exciting to us. And we're working really hard on that. And then on the flip side, we're also trying to do the complete opposite of that and go really, really small. And the same way that those systems are operating, we're trying to figure out how to do that as small as possible. And then now it's like, how safe can we be? How small of a space can you fly through? You know, can you fly around players on the field safely? Like that kind of stuff. And so I think we're, we're splashing between those two worlds, uh, but those are probably our main focus and a little bit of in-between stuff, obviously, but uh, I'd say the main emphasis is, is excelling at both ends of those spectrums. You know, I think, I think I know where the answer of this one's going, but we have seen the growth of FPV drones uh, exponentially, probably over the last 12 to, you know, two years, 12 months to two years. Is FPV here to stay uh, in your eyes? Oh yeah, of course. It's not, it's not going anywhere. And honestly, it was here from the beginning, <laughs> you know, even when, when I first started, I was flying FPV and I remember at the very beginning, like back in, you know, whenever I consider myself a competent pilot, somewhere around 2015, I was pushing to get it on film sets and nobody, it was just like too weird of a thing to like convince somebody of it. And nobody, you know, like a GoPro, how are you going to fly a GoPro or professional? No, it's not going to work. And you know, I could, I, I literally couldn't pay somebody to uh, do that at the beginning. And now it's so popular, you know, I'd say the majority, majority of our shoots include some sort of FPV. Um, it is complimentary though, because it is such a specific shot. So while I, while I think the, the fad will, will dwindle a little bit, and we probably even have seen that happening a little bit that, you know, it, it will level out for sure. But I think the type of shots that you can get FPV are impossible in any other way. So it's definitely here to stay, but it will definitely morph also. So, you know, I, I think at some point it'll become indistinguishable of what is, what is FPV and what is normal drone. And there'll be a moment where it's just kind of like drone. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of different things, you know, technology, we've talked about the, you know, advancements in the legal side of things of, you know, regulations and the NFL limiting things and not just the NFL, but I think there's a fear of, of drones um, and, and hurting someone. But what is the biggest barrier to entry for the next place you guys want to go? Is it, you know, getting the execs of a big organizations to say, hey, we trust you with everything, let's do it? Or is it the technology has to advance a little bit more to go there? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, of course. But the natural, there's a, there's a huge natural fear of drones. And, and I think, you know, some of it is, is, is well, well-founded while other, uh, other parts of it are not so much. And I think typically the times we get, you know, because there's times where we get hired to do jobs and, and then we go out and, and we're not, a, the job will go away because somebody did not allow it or did not want it. I feel like every time that's happened, it's been because of an unrealistic or proper fear. There's no question about it. I mean, the drones in, in the wrong hands can be, you know, not a good thing, but um, I think when handled correctly, they can, they can be very safe and, you know, they can be a great addition to many different environments. So I don't think it's, I, I think there is a lot of education going on. Um, and I'd say that because we are, we have been the first on a lot of types of jobs being the first or early on, not necessarily even the first, but just being the first few drones that are used on whatever sport or environment. There's a lot of education that goes between us and, and the decision makers. There's also a lot of uh, not so great operators <laughs> that don't uh, leave good taste in people's mouths. 
And so that's, that's tough. And, but you know, as the industry grows, it's just, a, it's a natural thing. It's, there was just such a big influx of, of people that started drone companies all at once that that's, you know, to be expected, but yeah, I mean the, the tech, I don't think the tech is holding us back right now, but as it advances, it definitely will allow us to do more things safe, safer. Um, but also, re- you know, regulations change quite often. Uh, the FAA changes rules uh, and things you're allowed to do and approves what you're allowed to do and not do. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's always been a moving target of finding the right spot between what's legal, what they'll allow you to do, <laughs> and then what you're capable of <laughs> at the same time. So I think it's a little bit of all of them, probably. Over the 10 years plus that you've been flying, what's the most memorable flight for you? Uh, it would be the fly through on the Kia job where we flew through the moving vehicle. I'm really proud. Of, I'm really proud of that shot. There was no catch. Everyone thinks someone caught it in the car and there was no catch. And I, and I, I, I pra- it trained in essence for it. And, you know, it was, uh, yeah, man, that, that's, that's my favorite right now. And I think it was like where I finally got everything. Like we were called by a big agency and they had just pitched the shot to a couple other drone companies who had told them it was impossible. And they called me and they're like, hey, is this possible? And I was like, yes, but I need this <laughs> and this. And, you know, and one of my things was it's possible, but I want to demo it for you and show you the limitations because there will be some limitations. And they said, okay. And then we set up that day. And then uh, I practiced a lot in the office and flying through a stationary car and, and built a custom little drone and decased a, a GoPro and rebuilt it and the GoPro weighed like 30 something grams. And so I'm flying on this like really small drone and practice flying through the car and finally got it to a point where I could, I could do it consistently. And then, so then I go and I showed the guy, the director and DP it in a parking lot in perfect environments with no wind and no nothing. And uh, I think I was able to do it like, you know, three out of every five attempts or four out of every five attempts. And they were pretty happy with it. And we, we figured out and said, okay, this is the max speed the car can go. Like, look, there's some things we might have to be aware of, maybe wind. I was like, but I need a flat road. And I gave him my other list of recommendations. And then I said, the other thing is I need the car for myself to do it, you know? And so they're like, okay, we'll give you four hours on one day. And then we get to the location and it's like up a hill on a dirt bumpy oh, road. Cool. And I was like, wait, I was like, I said like flat road, like, what is this? And they're like, yeah, it's pretty flat. And I was like, uh, it's actually uphill. And like, you know, and then the day before the shoot, I had to build a new bigger drone because the drone I had built wasn't able to fly in the windy conditions. And then all the, it was also at like, I think it was like five or 6,000 feet AGL. So the drone flew worse than it did in LA in a parking lot in perfect conditions. And so the night before I built like three or four brand new drones and they showed up and, you know, with a little unsure if it was going to be possible or not. And then there was uh, that perfect take. And I knew it was perfect in that moment because I just, I flew into the car and it just like locked and I matched the speed of the car perfectly. And then I flew out the window blind. And then when I landed, I was like, that's it. It's not going to get better. Like that was the take. And it came out really good. And the whole internet thought that someone caught it, which was kind of funny, but it was flown. So, <laughs> you know, I think that brings up another good point of, you know, beautiful shots. The, the Tom Brady shot. And I believe you were the pilot in command on that, where he's standing probably 100 to 200 yards away from the hole and takes out an iron, chips it in. and the question I have for you is Tom Brady is known to uh, fake a few things occasionally on, on, you know, video shoots. Was that a real authentic ball in the hole or was there a little, uh, just a beautiful flight with a little uh, tinkering there in it? Or will you plead the fifth? <laughs> well, you know, anytime I'm on set with high profile people, I'm very limited to what I'm allowed to say. So I sign my life away to NDAs and, uh, but I can tell you flew the drone. He hit the ball we got a few takes with him and it came out pretty damn good. <laughs> it did look good. And, and, you know, for those out there, definitely go check out Beverly Hills Aerials on Instagram where all these videos can be seen that Mike is talking about now. But Mike, before I let you go, one last question here. When, when you look back at your career, whether that's, you know, today or that's 20 years or 30 years from now, what do you hope people will remember? I'm hoping that they will remember a team of high performing best in the world drone pilots that did everything the right, proper, legal, and safe way, and were able to get shots that 
nobody else was able to get. All right, Mike, coming off of two Emmy wins this past year, congratulations on everything. Uh, and, and really, you know, blazing the trail in the industry as well. And uh, thanks for coming on Hangar Talk with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. So tell me, what, what's it like being in a race? Do you, is it like, it's got to be interesting because I mean, obviously there's the intensity of what's going on on the track, but then there's the helicopters flying over too. And maybe you get to see the drones and it's like, obviously they have to deconflict. It's got to be pretty, pretty crazy, pretty intense. Well, I've actually flown with um, helicopter pilots over at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And we, you, you do have to deconflict not only with drones, but with other helicopters as well, with a TV broadcast crew. And, and you just have to have your head on a swivel. One really cool thing that I did a while back was that I rode right seat with Tony Stewart, who's now retired. But Tony Stewart, uh, the NASCAR driver, uh, known also as Smoke, that's his nickname. But I was right seat with him at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And Ian, I cannot tell you how freaked out I was, you know, being that close to the wall at, you know, 150, 160 miles an hour. And that wasn't even as fast as he could go. I was going to say he was taking it easy on you. Yeah. Taking it easy on me was, was uh, riding right seat with smoking. I must say he was a very nice guy. You know, a lot of times he comes off of, as being gruff, but he's actually a really good guy once you get to know him. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in these tracks. The Beverly Hills aerials and folks like that, they do provide a very valuable service. And it's really interesting to see the technology and how it's grown in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and occasionally on YouTube. So check us out when you can. All right. We'll see you next time, Dave. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.